0: Now, there's some things we want to look at here that are very striking. Notice the first thing he says in verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Now, that takes us back to a book that we've been in in the past, and we will go back to not-too-distant future. And that is in Daniel chapter 7, we have this amazing picture of heaven. When all of the world's empires... Stretch out before Daniel, beginning with Babylon and going from Babylon to that of the Medes, who were taken over by the Persians, and then to the Greeks, and finally to the Romans, we have a revelation from God about the true king. Now, there is much on the news about the burial of the queen and somebody trying to run up and touch her coffin, pulling off the covers. Well, I want to tell you, she isn't the true queen. And no king that's ever lived in history is the true king. The true king, the king of kings and lord of lords, is revealed to us in Scripture in Daniel chapter 7. And look here at verse 13. He says, that's page 1384. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, there are many things in the Olivet Discourse that cause us some uncertainty. Well, what is this about? What is that about? Is this about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Or is this about the second coming? Well, let me say, it's very clear in Matthew 25, 31, This is the second coming of Christ. But Christ came during the days of the Roman Empire to begin the establishment of His kingdom. And that's very, very important. And Daniel makes that very plain. And we're told as we will look back at the book of Daniel, uh, not next weeks so I'm going to preach on deacons next week, but in the coming months, as we look back at the other chapters of Daniel that we've not looked at, we will see that Christ's first coming was predicted to happen during the days of the Roman Empire, and He would begin a destruction of world governments so that eventually His kingdom would spread throughout the entire world. Christ's second coming is the completion of the expansion of his kingdom. And so what we might say is that the kingdom begins in the days of Tiberius Caesar, and it continues on until his second coming. And during that time, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only king and head of the church, The only ultimate leader of the nations of the world will have completed his conquest of the nations. So one of the things that we need to be about in this church is to make sure that Jesus reigns. Because God uses us, our Christian witness, our prayers, our giving... He uses that to expand the kingdom of Christ. So what we have in view here in Matthew 25, 31, back on page fifteen, forty-two, is the completion of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The two words are used interchangeably. And the basic reason to understand kingdom of heaven and Matthew as over against kingdom of God is because Jewish people were taught not to say God's name. I have... not a girlfriend, but I have a female friend from high school who is Jewish. And she gets into all these extensive things once in a while. She will write, and she will never write the word God out. She will have G-D, and she will never say God's actual name. And so, What you've got in the Gospel of Matthew is a clear indication that the book of Matthew was written to the Jewish people to explain the Gospel to them. So when he says, then the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. Now, it's very apparent. This is the end of the age. This is the consummation of everything. This is the completion of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus reigning at the right hand of the Father till he has completed the task that the father gave him. And so that's what's in view. And then we notice here, very clearly, notice the emphasis on glory. That's, that's an indication that we're speaking of something that is profoundly heavenly, yet is come on earth. Now, verse 32, "...all nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left." And so, the sheep... Let's think about that for a moment. You might want to hold your hand there and turn with me to the left, um, to the right, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about himself being the great shepherd. Let's observe a couple of thoughts there. John chapter 10, and, he, and beginning at verse 11, page one, six six six. So, John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is a very key theme in the Gospel of John Jesus is the good shepherd. And this is going to be very important as we work our way through Matthew 25 later on. And it's this the whole focus of this is Christ's flock, the sheep. And so he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he also says something here. And he says, and if you turn, turn the page over, he says in verse 16, and he was talking about Patsy and B.R. and you and me here. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So you see, Jesus is not only praying, uh, uh, talking about his current disciples at the time he was speaking in John 10, which was at Hanukkah, by the way. He's not only talking about the people who who were his disciples then, his sheep. He's talking about all those who would ever become his sheep. Throughout the ages. In other words, that kingdom that began in the days of Tiberius Caesar and continues on to the glorious return of Christ. That is the time in which Christ's sheep are gathered into the fold from the nations of the world. And now he goes on down and he he says something else. He says in verse 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you that I'm the Messiah, But you do not believe the miracles that I do in my Father's name. Oh, then he says, The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. There's never going to be a goat in heaven. Not one single solitary goat in heaven. Only the sheep will be in heaven. And notice what he says there about the sheep. The sheep... In verse 27, listen to his voice. He says, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Then he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand, my father's hand. I and my father are one. Wow, think about it. Christ's sheep. That's y'all. And it includes me. Christ's sheep held in the hands of the Father, held in the hands of Jesus. We are preserved in Jesus. We are kept. And so we're talking about Christ's sheep. Not only those who were his sheep in 30 AD, but those who have become his sheep in 2022 and on into the future till Jesus comes. So now we go back. And we see something else here. Notice in Matthew chapter 25 who he's talking about. Look at verse 40, page 1542. The king will reply. Now, Jesus is the king. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Have you ever thought about the fact that you were an orphan, as was I? And Jesus caused us to be adopted into God's family. And I can tell you, having witnessed the adoption of two grandchildren in Memphis, you can get out of being responsible for a child you produced, but you can never get out of your responsibility for an adopted child. I never realized how binding an adoption is. Even if a father and mother divorce... The obligations they assumed in a court of law are perpetual and binding, and they cannot disinherit an adopted child, whereas a natural child can be disinherited. Or in the case of Sandy's in my will, anyone who contests any provision in our will is automatically disinherited. That's why the lawyer that drew it up told us that I've never had anybody challenge one of my wills. I know now why. But adoption. You and I have been adopted into God's family. We are the children of God. And Jesus is our elder brother. And so again, looking at verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now that... I pray, will give you some relief as you turn now to the right to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, just before Ephesians, and look at verses 9 and 10, because it's important that we understand what Jesus is telling us. Galatians chapter 6, and look at verse 9, page 1816. Let us not become weary in doing good, For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let that sink in a moment. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Notice the last clause. Especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What is he saying? This is very important. Because what's in view in Matthew 25 is not indiscriminately doing good for people. What's in view in Matthew 25 is what we do for Christ's brothers and sisters. What, we, what is in view in Matthew 25 is what we do for Christ's sheep. That's why he says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me. This is very important because street hustlers prey on people's guilt strings. You know, some of those people make more money than you make. It's all tax free unreportable income and you know there are people that send out groups to collect the money and they pour all that money together and there's some guy at the top not unlike a pimp who sends people out to hustle people for money The worst place I've ever been for hustling uh, is in Laredo where I used to go every other month and I would be there a week at a time and they're on every street corner hustling for money and you begin to realize wow So what is it? Is this about making you and me do something for just anybody and everybody everywhere? Is this a a guilt trip? No. It's really important to keep the principle of Galatians 6, 9, and 10 together. As you have opportunity, do good for all men. In other words, we do do good things for people who are not believers. But he says, your focus has to be the body of Christ. Your focus has to be the sheep. Your focus has to be Christ's brothers and sisters. So again, keep that in mind in verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people as we have opportunity, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And again, the reminder in verse 10... Let's not become weary in doing good because he says something here. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Now, let's go back to Matthew uh, chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And, And notice here what he says... To his sheep. Verse 34, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, These are believers, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Do you mean to tell me that God had me in mind when he created this heavenly inheritance? Yes. From before time began, you were in the plan and purpose of God. And he determined to do everything he had to do in order to see that you would enjoy this wonderful inheritance of belonging to him for all eternity. Again, I want, I want you to notice that. Prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, I want you to see across the page where he says in verse 41, to the goats, these are the ones on the left, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Let that sink in for a moment. No human being who is in hell is there because God predestined him to hell. Let's say that again. No one, no human being who is in hell is there because God predestined him to go to hell. Why is he in hell? Because he's just like I am. He deserves to be there. It's by his own choice that he goes to hell. Now, you've got to hold on because we've got to say, on the, ha- on the other hand, when it comes to the sheep in heaven... No one who is in heaven is there because of his initial decision to be there. In other words, going to heaven is a matter of God's sovereign, electing grace. His grace that's extended to us effectually and irresistibly in Christ. So I'm going to go to heaven. It has nothing to do with me, how I've lived, what I've done. It's what God has done for me on behalf of Christ in my place. See, it's very important to understand people go to heaven based on God's choice of them. People go to hell based on their choices. In other words, we may say that the goats who are cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared not for human beings, but for the devil and his angels... They're there by their own choice and their own free will. Me, if it were up to my free will, I'd be in there with all those goats. Because goats are more fun than lambs. No. Here's the whole thing. When you look at the destiny of humanity, heaven, hell, people go to hell by their own decisions, their own choices, their own works and failure to work, God simply withdraws from them the influence and allows them to suffer the penalties of their own decisions and their own behavior, their own wickedness. Hell was prepared for whom? Not humans. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But heaven, heaven was prepared for Christ's sheep. He prepared it for you and for me who trust in him. So again, the destinies of human beings. People go to hell by their own choice. People go to heaven because of God's choice. And it's a mystery. Now... That's probably a good topic for another sermon one day, but I don't want to belabor the point. Remember, hell was created for Satan and his angels, but human beings end up there because of their own decisions, their own choices, and God simply passes them by. And you know, it reminds me of an old hymn, Savior, Savior, do not pass me by. While on others thou art calling... They are falling, do not pass me by. And you know, the hymn writer was reflecting on this. In of those great awakenings that America and Britain experienced, there was a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit where sometimes people were walking by on the street outside of a church building and they fell down on their knees before God because the power of God was so great in the first and second great awakenings that people simply going by a church or sometimes into a particular village. We're so overwhelmed with the power of God. And that's what we need to remember. You will never see anybody converted apart from the work of the Holy Spirit working on them. That's why the most important thing any church can do is pray. Why? Because as we pray, God sends His Spirit. And His Spirit falls on people and converts people and they become believers. So again, it's important to understand people send themselves to hell and God simply passes by while he's falling on others. They send themselves to hell. They go to the place that was prepared for Satan and his angels. But people who go to heaven go to heaven because of God's sovereign, electing, irresistible, effectual grace. God, I can say this in my life. I was converted on a Friday night about 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night in a Sunday school room in the church that I had become a member of when I was 10 years old without understanding what it meant to be a Christian. And I was the only member of the church who was in that room that night. That night, in a very non-emotional way, I prayed the same prayer I'd prayed many times in my life. Sometimes even when I thought I was an atheist. And that night, without emotion, without tears, without anything at all, I knew that I knew that I knew that I had become a Christian. And it's because God's Spirit fell on me and he, he fell on me in part, I believe, because my praying mother would be on her knees night after night in the middle of the night, praying for her drunken son, her blaspheming son, to come to Jesus. And that's how it happened. So again, we see, depart from me, verse 41. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now we go back again. Uh, In verse 37, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? Now, this is very important. We do not go to heaven because we do these things. We do not become Christians by doing these things. These things are evidences of having become Christians. What's in view here are the good works of Christ. And again, it's very important we not allow guilt to manipulate us into foolish behavior. Does God want you to go down State Line Avenue on Friday night or Saturday night and load your car up with a bunch of people and bring them into your house to sleep it off? No. But what if somebody comes to your door and knocks? And I'm so sorry to bother you. I'm hungry. Do you have something to eat? I've got to ask a question. What does Jesus want you to do? Well, let's read it and we'll see. So it's important we understand that these are evidences of true faith rather than seeing them as the cause of salvation. What they really are is this. They are a description of how Jesus dealt with people. How did Jesus deal with people? You know how he dealt with people. Jesus allowed them to slap him in the face. I'm not going to bruise my cheek again as I did a couple of weeks ago by slapping myself on one cheek and then on the other. But Jesus allowed himself to be abused. Jesus was the doormat that people have to wipe their feet on in order to have their feet clean to walk into heaven. Jesus is the supreme example. So what we see here in these, in these descriptions is a picture of the life of Christ himself, which is a life of risk-taking. A life of risk-taking. And so that's what we see as we read through the list. Again, this is not your obligation to go indiscriminately pick up people on the street corners and bring them into your home. But it is... I don't see any way around it. A description of the life of Christ, who is the ultimate model. What about the Ten Commandments? The first thing I want to say is that the Ten Commandments are a refraction of the character of God. What do I mean by refraction? My aunt, who left me enough money to buy a home of my own in 1999, had this thing I used to love to look at, she had a prism on top of her mantle. And I like to turn it around. Not only did it display the colors of the rainbow, but it was really interesting for a small child. Fortunately, I never broke it. And so what does a prism do? A prism takes light. And it refracts it so that we have everything bordering on the ultraviolet, which we can't see, to the infrared, which we can't see. So all of the colors that are in light in this very room. If we had a giant prism here, you would see refracted, broken out the colors of the light that we're in the middle of here, which is essentially white light. But it really contains all these beautiful colors. What are the Ten Commandments? They are a refraction of the character of God given on Mount Sinai as a permanent guide to people to know how to live. But, and this is a huge but, what's so important is to realize there are people all around us every day who pretty much keep the Ten Commandments but do not know God. Inside, they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus said, you're like whitewashed graves. You look clean and nice, even to yourself. Do you know that self-righteous people can look in the mirror and say, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Paul could say of himself in the book of Philippians, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. So there's more than the Ten Commandments that has happened to be the standard for the Christian. The standard for the Christian. And Jesus kept the Ten Commandments is the life of Christ refracting that character of God in a hostile, antagonistic, unbelieving world. Let that sink in for a moment. With that in mind then, let's look back at verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, then the righteous will answer him. And I'm always struck at verse 37. They didn't realize what they were doing. They were just doing what is natural for someone who has been forgiven much and has experienced the power and presence, life-changing power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So they weren't even thinking about earning their way to heaven. Because they, they couldn't. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then Jesus, the king will answer, will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now let that sink in. He's not talking about indiscriminate risk-taking for everybody everywhere. Sandy and I have been watching over the past two weeks off and on uh, Ken Burns' documentary on World War II. Came away believing that all generals are insane. And how they used their people like butchers. That's what Mrs. Lincoln said to her husband Abraham. Said General Grant is a butcher. And you know, as I watched World War II documentary, I was struck. Those generals were butchers. They sent people into battle knowing that they weren't going to make it. Wow. War changed in the mid-1800s. Total war. Risk. But I learned something else. The brutality of life. Does God call you to go running out in the middle of a battlefield to take risks just as you are. And the answer is according to your place and calling. If you're a soldier, then your calling is to take risks in war. To risk the possibility you're going to be shot through the head. As thousands and thousands of Americans were. That's not your call. It's according to your place and call. So what is your place and calling? Your place and calling is right where you are, living in the greater Texarkana area. God calls you to take risks. To take risks. He calls you to reach out to whom? Not to just anybody. You don't want to bring a heathen in your home who will take over your house and destroy your Christian values. But he he talks about these brothers of mine, these sheep. So people are judged by how they deal with believers. How they deal with believers. Again, Galatians 6.10, as you have opportunity, he says, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. And then notice, again, he says to those on his left, verse 41, "...depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me." Now notice the surprise on their faces in verse 44. Both groups are surprised. God's own people, his sheep, the brothers of Christ are surprised because they were just doing what came supernaturally once they experienced the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But notice these. These were hard-hearted people in verse 44. And they're shocked and they immediately go into defensive mode. Verse 44, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he says in verse 45, he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Sum this up. Good works are an evidence of true faith good works are an evidence of true faith what i mean by that is this god declares us righteous solely on the basis of our faith in his son jesus christ so we are justified by faith alone but by a faith that is never alone As the Sunday School Diddy put it, if you're saved and you know it, then your life surely show it. In other words, if I in my life am no different than the world, I have to question whether I've really exercised true faith in Christ. Because if I exercise true faith in Christ... I will be changed. I'll be transformed. The new birth means somebody has a new nature imparted to them by the Holy Spirit. So while they are declared righteous solely on the basis of faith, yet that faith always is accompanied by a changed life. To what degree? Well, it varies from one person to another. The important thing to remember in this last sermon of Christ before he's crucified is that the great evidence of faith in Christ is a life that is risky. 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 Do you know the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians never compelled anyone to become a Christian. By force, they used tools, prayer, and persuasion Christianity was never forced on anybody because they understood Jesus calls people to be willing to die for him, not to be willing to kill for him. Again, not talking about soldiers in war. Christians are called to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a number of books, one of which was The Cost of Discipleship. And he said, when Jesus Christ calls a man, He calls him to die. And what do you get as you read this list of things that people did do and didn't do? It's a list of dying. What do I value more than anything else? My wife will tell you. Sandy, what do I value more than anything else? That's it. That's it. That's it. I value time more than anything else. Time is the one thing I can't get more of. And I'm always running late because I'm trying to finish this task in order to get this done before I go do this. I value time. So what do I do when somebody calls me? Jesus calls me to do what? I didn't stomp the blotch. <laughs> Don't worry. He calls me to die to time. Time is my most precious commodity. I worship time almost. So that's my big stronghold. I have to be willing. We had a phone call this morning as we were driving up. That phone call went on what? Fifty minutes? Would you say? Something like that. I had a lot I wanted to get done. But this person needed to talk out some things and to be prayed for. Time. How about privacy? We all like our privacy, don't we? But Jesus has called you and me to take risk. Jail. Have you ever been in jail? I have. Fortunately, it was visiting folks. Is it risky to go to jail? Sure is, particularly in the first century. Wow. You go in, think about places like China today. Think about places like Saudi Arabia, the most violently anti-Christian nation on the face of the earth. Do you run risk when you go visit somebody there? Sure. What's he doing here? Check him out. Secret police. The Stasi. It's risky. What about opening your door? Has God called you when you get the knock on the door and somebody says, it's raining, I'm cold, can you take me in? What should you do? I'll tell you what I would do. I would always pray. If my wife and I pray, and we're in agreement, we'll take that person in. We've done it many times over the years. Our children grew up in a home of strangers coming and spending the night, but not always. You want to discern from the Holy Spirit, should I do this or should I not do it? Does God have a specific will for your life regarding decisions like, oh, okay, This is on my right. This must be a sheep. Okay, come on in. The answer is this. What is the mark of the new birth? What is the mark of a changed life? What is the great and compelling evidence of faith? It's being like Jesus who made Himself of no account and put you and me ahead of Himself. He gave up the security and glory of heaven for your sake. For your sake. That's what he did. He left the glory of heaven, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There never was a time that he was not living in the glory of the Father and the Holy Spirit from all time. Leaves the glory and security of heaven. And by the power of the third person in the Godhead, he is united with a single cell of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And he lives inside her womb for nine months. That's risky, isn't it? Babies die in the womb. It was risky. And he's born. He's born in a stable. Wow, that's risky. He was born in a place where megalomaniacal politicians rule the world. That was risky. The point is, if you look at the life of Jesus, what does he do? He makes Himself of no account. He makes Himself of no account. I'm not important. Pat's important. I'm not important. Martha's important. That's Jesus' attitude. And He calls you and me to imitate Him because the ultimate standard of the Christian life is the life of Jesus Himself. It's risky business. Is God calling somebody today to go to a foreign mission field and serve him? It could be. He said, But Bob, I'm almost 90 years old. Wow. You know, Moses was 80 years old and he was already there on the backside of the desert, having worked for his father in law for 40 years, ready to sign the dotted line from the cemetery lot salesman My life's over. I had my chances when I was 40. My hot temper, my foolishness, my brashness blew it all. And here he is now, 40 years of a wasted life, working for his daddy-in-law. And God calls him. Can God call you at 80? Wow. If he does, I can promise you the happiest days of your life will be in responding to that call. What did he call you to do? Take risks. But be sure you're listening to the Holy Spirit who will guide you. And you will have an amazing testimony. Beloved in Christ, our world is falling apart at the seams. Because we have had a kind of Christianity for well over a hundred years that really wasn't very risky at all. That never insulted people with the gospel, the law and the gospel. Just let people be. Just... Be religious and go to church. God's calling you and me to go into all the world and share the gospel in a risky way, particularly towards Christ's sheep. For as much as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless us this day, that we would think about the reality that we're called to make a difference in the world. The reason that the first Christians in the course of 300 years won the Roman Empire to you was they were willing to die for their faith. They took in the stranger. They fed the hungry. They clothed the naked. They visited one another in prison. They brought cheer where there was only despair. And when Christians were suffering for their faith, sometimes Roman soldiers left their weapons and went out on the ice to suffer with a Christian soldier who was being frozen to death. That risky faith, that opening of the heart and taking risk to ordinary people is what changed the Roman Empire. You can do it again. Do it, Lord, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.